All right, I'd like to introduce our speaker. It is Andrew Brockelman. Did I say that right, Andrew? Um, and we need to give him a, an especially loud welcome because he is a fellow Western Kansan. So, yeah. We, he and I were just talking last night about our Western Kansas roots, so God's even at work out there, um, out in the, the ends of the earth. But um, he's gonna, he works with Chris Starr and is down in Dallas and is going to be speaking to us this weekend. So, Adam, Andrew, good to have you. Great. Thank you. Well, it's so, it's so good to be here. Um, like you said, my name is Andrew. I uh, live in the Dallas area now. Um, but I still tell people I'm from Kansas because I'll always be from Kansas. Um, so it's just always fun to be back in my home state and to be uh, sharing with you guys. I just want to say over the last couple of days as I've gotten to talk with you guys, I am just so grateful for 12th Avenue and the way that you guys are involved in missions and ministry. And it's just blown me away. And I've, I've been so encouraged uh, just even being here over the last couple of days. And so just thank you and um, praise God for that. Um, so a couple things you do need to know about me. Like he said, I grew up in western Kansas. Um, I grew up as one of eight children in my family, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, the town I grew up in, though, was only about 200 people. Right, so do the math with me. My family was 5% of the population of my hometown. Like It literally dropped a significant amount when all of my siblings left for college. Um, I was raised in a Christian home, but it wasn't until I got to college at Kansas State that I realized I wasn't one. So I you know, went to study engineering there, and uh, I knew, though, when I was in college, I wanted one thing to be true of my life. I, I wanted to date Christian girls. I don't know, because they're nice or something. The, the problem was I didn't know any. So like any other guy would do, I started getting involved with his college ministry to meet a girl. But instead, I met Jesus. Good trade, right? Yeah, I, I graduated college still single, so yeah, that plan worked. <laughs> I guess. Uh, it finally did work. Uh, this is my wife, Abby. We've been married for about six years. And our daughter, Lucy, will be two in January. Um, so they're both bright redheads. So like you can't miss them. People stare at them when we're going places. It's really fun. Uh, she's at a fun age right now. Um, but after I graduated college, met my wife, Abby, working for a ministry called The Traveling Team. So did that for about five years, traveling to universities and sharing about God's heart for the world and trying to invite them to be a part of what God's doing. And then when my wife and I got married, we joined Christar and served in Spain at the international office for about seven months and got to visit 10 different countries where Christar has workers in North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, South Asia. And if you would have told me um, growing up where I did that God would allow me to even see some of these places, let alone be a part of what I'm doing, I would have told you you were crazy, right? Because where I grew up, the most important thing to us wasn't reaching the world. The most important thing was feeding the world, right? I grew up on a farm, um, and just in agricultural areas in general, you know that the most exciting and the most important year, time of the year, is the harvest season, Right? I mean, farmers, you know, you're, you're working in the fields, you're, you're plowing, you're sowing seeds, you're taking care of all the things you need to, all for that payday one time a year where you harvest your crops, and that's how you get your salary for the whole year. And so I remember one year in particular, it was that time of year in our area, and um, a really exciting time, and a farmer, though, who was in our area, he had a field of wheat that he just let sit through the harvest. 
Right? This guy never harvested his field, which that's a, that's a problem in Kansas, right? You don't have all the time in the world where the grain literally just begins to spoil and rot away in the field. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. So just imagine with me, you're driving on your way back and forth to work every day, watching the equivalent of about $50,000 just rot away in the field. And I had to find out what happened, right? In a small town, you don't just let these things go without finding out what happened. And what happened, this farmer, he simply forgot to harvest his field. Right? How do you forget the most important job in the state of Kansas, right? This guy did it. But as I was thinking about this picture later, a phrase just kept coming to my mind. And it's that a harvest without laborers becomes a tragedy. You know, harvest without laborers becomes a tragedy. So maybe, maybe individually for us here in the room tonight, we haven't forgotten what God, has, the task that God has given us to do as the church, but I would say by and large, most of the church in the U.S. has. But chances are you're here tonight because we want to give our lives to a bigger purpose, or we want to give ourselves to something with a lasting meaning, something that will leave a legacy far beyond our time here on earth. And the good news is God has given us a task just like that to do. What's even better news is that this task is something that God is doing, and he's just inviting us to play a part in what he's doing. And our daughter, she'll turn two in January, and she loves helping us do the dishes, like as a two-year-old. I hope that continues like in the future, right? But is she like really necessary to the task of us doing our dishes? No, but it's our joy as parents to allow her and to invite her to participate in that. And so I just wanted to think about the task. And tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to take a look at the task. What has God given us to do? Where are we at in completing this task that God has given the church to do? What is left and how are we doing to reach the world? And then tomorrow, we're going to do a lot more like biblical foundations of what God is doing uh, more specifically. And so let me just pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's word and take a look at what he's doing in the world. Father, we thank you just for this evening. We thank you just for the opportunity to gather in a dry place uh, that has heat, and uh, I pray that you would remove any distractions from us, that we may hear from you. God, we need you to speak. We thank, to, thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, and I pray that we would live in response to these things as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so t- the first verse I want to share, just kind of some biblical foundation of where we're going tonight. Um, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives kind of a precursor to the Great Commission. Um, in the beginning of Matthew 24, the end of chapter 23, Jesus tells the disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. Like they were just marveling at the temple, and then Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another, which that would be quite startling if you're the disciples, right? <laughs> to see the most magnificent building you've ever seen in your life, and Jesus is to say, hey, this isn't going to exist anymore. And so what the disciples do in Matthew 24, 3, is that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The first question, they're asking him two questions. When are these things going to be? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And then they ask another question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then the next two chapters, Jesus goes on and answers these two questions. And right in the middle of his answer, Jesus says this. He says, in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in Jesus' name, 
will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, before you start getting too nervous, we're not going to talk about end time stuff like at all tonight. Maybe that's disappointing to you. We're not going to touch that at all. What I just want to say, first of all, is what this verse is not saying. Jesus is not saying if we just get our act together and like go finish the task and reach the world, then Jesus is going to come back. Like Jesus is waiting, like, come on, guys, like, I'm ready. Like, why aren't you getting after it? Like, let's do this. Jesus is not waiting for us, but he's given us this promise and we see this throughout all of Scripture, that God is on a mission to reach all nations with the gospel. And that mission and that promise has to be fulfilled before Jesus can inaugurate his eschatological, his end time, his kingdom on earth. And so before the end comes, this has to happen. But when we look at this verse, we also see two questions. And what, is this, what does a testimony mean? What is like an adequate testimony? And then what about this all nations bit. Like, what does that mean? Is there a list of nations that God's given us somewhere? Is that like the appendix in the Bible? Like, we just don't know. What is this all nations bit? So I'm just going to dive into a couple of these things uh, briefly tonight. And the first one is this idea of nations. Obviously, when Jesus gave this verse or this statement, and when Jesus gave the Great Commission as well, the, he's not talking about the geopolitical nations, like countries that we have on earth today, right? Because they didn't even exist uh, at Jesus' day. And so what is he talking about? The Greek word here is, is ethnos, where we get our English word ethnic. In the singular form, it's talking about a people, a group of people, a nation, a race, a tribe. When it's used in the plural sense in the Greek, it's talking about peoples, nations, or just Gentiles, non-Jews in general. And we take this, this verse here, and the usage in this term is talking about different people groups. Some of the different people groups that God has created uniquely who will have a testimony among them uh, before the end will come. Now, we can even see back in Genesis 12 when, Jesus, when God gave the promise to Abraham, he said to him, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, through Abraham's descendant, through Jesus and the gospel going. So we can even see, even in that usage, that it's a rather small group of people, could be. Families is often used to describe tribes or clans in the Old Testament as well, that Hebrew term. And so when we're talking about nations, there's a couple different things we need to think about uh, when we're thinking about different people groups uh, within that. This is a good example of like a, a, an ethno-linguistic people group in our day and age. This is a picture of my wife and I took a couple of these pictures when we were visiting some of our team members, our coworkers in the Middle East. Um, so this is the Yazidi people. Uh, the Yazidis became a lot more famous or well-known for all the wrong reasons, because the Yazidis were being massacred by ISIS in 2013-2014 because they're not Muslim. They have their own religious beliefs, their own culture, their own tribal uh, families that make up the Yazidi people. And over there on the left, while we were there, some of our coworkers said, hey, we're, we got invited to this Yazidi celebration. I have no idea what the celebration was, what the holiday was, or anything. I said, hey, why don't you come with us? We're going to go to this, this family's house. Uh, we're gonna, I don't really know what's going to happen. We're just going to show up and enjoy our time there. And so I think that picture on the left, I don't know if you can see it, but that's like the closest I'm ever going to get to the banquet hall, like the wedding banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb on this side of eternity. Like, we're all sitting there on the floor. You've got all kinds of fish and lentils and soup and Pepsi. Like, it's just amazing, uh, the, the feast there. 
Um, they have their own unique culture, their own unique language, their own unique religion, and there's very, very few believers amongst the Yazidis uh, there in the Middle East. There's two different ways that the gospel progresses in the world, um, within people groups and, and around the world. And the first of these ideas is that the gospel relatively easily spreads within a people group. It relatively easily spreads within a people group, but does not jump from one people group to another because of different barriers that prevent the gospel from going from one group of people to another. And so to illustrate this, I want to take us to breakfast for a little bit. How many of you guys love breakfast? We had a great breakfast this morning. All right, great. How many of you guys love pancakes? How many of you love waffles? Both hands up, right? Um, well, when I think about the gospel easily spreading, I think of the gospel like just like you pour syrup on a pancake and it just spreads over your entire plate, right? But if you're thinking about waffles, you have to put syrup in each individual square, right? Because you're missing out on like all the goodness that is there if you don't do that. And so the gospel easily spreads, but it does not easily jump from one group of people to another for a couple different reasons. One is language. Language. This is a map of the country of Nigeria. And I used to think that if uh, we just sent like super missionary, uh, whoever, let's call them Joe or something, um, and they went to Nigeria, learned the language, learned the culture, God used them to spread the gospel, establish a church, that church grew, multiplied, spread, on, on, on. The whole country of Nigeria would be reached eventually. But that's what the map of Nigeria looks like politically. This is what the map of Nigeria looks like when we're talking about languages. We're 500 different languages native to the country of Nigeria. That's what missionary Joe has done is reached one of those little dots on the map in Nigeria. That's one, one barrier. The easiest to identify is language. If you can't speak the language of the people, you're not going to be able to share the gospel with them. The second uh, barrier, oh, this is, we're talking about Bible translation, some stats on that. Um, in the, all the languages in the world today, there's over 700 languages that have complete Bibles uh, in their language, where 1,600 languages have New Testaments completed in their language. And there's about 1,255 languages in the world right now with no work at all and zero words of Scripture in their language. Maybe that sounds like a lot to you. Maybe that doesn't. Um, when I first started teaching about 9, 10 years ago, that number, 1,255, was over 2,100. Significant progress being made in translating the Bible around the world. There's still a lot of work left to go. And of the languages in those different four different groups, there's 360 different sign languages in the world. And do you know how many sign languages have a complete Bible in their language? One. Just completed about four years ago. It's the ASLV, the American Sign Language Version. No other sign language in the world has a complete Bible in their language that I'm aware of at this point in time. That's Bible translation in languages. The second factor uh, is cultural biases and rivalries. So in India, a good example, this is the caste system. There's different castes of people that may not associate with people of different castes. And so if you reach one caste, they may not be able to share very well or receive the gospel message uh, in another caste. And so when you divide and kind of think these things together, what you end up with is, according to Joshua Project, about 17,000 people groups in the world. About 7,000 of those would be what we call reached people groups, people groups that have a significant witness, a significant testimony, a significant church within that people group. Unevangelized would be at least 2% um, 
would be evangelical Christian, uh, there's still tons of work to do. About 7,000 or 7,000 who are unreached people groups. Meaning, unreached simply means they don't have access to the gospel. Maybe there's not a Bible in their language. Maybe there's not a church that they could go to. Maybe there's no believers around them who could share the gospel with them. And those, of those 7,000, about 3,000 of those are unengaged. Unengaged simply means no work, no missionaries, no church, probably no believers among them. That's the number of people groups in the world. There's just over 8 billion people now. And about 3.4 billion are considered unreached. No access to the gospel, or very little access to the gospel. If you put those on a map, what you're left with, the green are the reached people groups, the yellow are the unevangelized, and the red are the unreached or the least reached. And so if you draw a square, a rectangle around the, a lot of the red areas, that's where the, t- the term the 1040 window comes from, if you've heard of that before as well. So if you look at all the different unreached people groups in the world, though, there's kind of five different groups for the most part that all these different people groups would fall into. And so a handy acronym to remember that is the THUMB acronym. So the next time that you're like texting or hitchhiking, you'll be able to remember all the major world religions or groups of people that are unreached in the world, okay? And so we're just going to go through this real briefly tonight. The T is going to stand for tribal, tribal people, right? The tribal people groups typically fall into a group called animism uh, as their main religion that they would um, believe. Animist typically um, would live in difficult places. This is a picture of my friend Brad, who uh, worked with an animistic people group in Papua New Guinea uh, many years ago. Um, Animists typically believe in the spirit world. So they're very afraid of the spirits, and the spirits control their lives. And so what that causes them to do is to be in fear of these spirits trying to manipulate and control the rock god, the the tree god. And uh, just like in Pocahontas, it's like every rock tree has a spirit, has a name. That's that's animism. Um, And so in the world today, there's about 700 million people who would claim an animistic religion and about 20, oh, wait, wait, there we go, about 900 different unreached people groups that have uh, an ethnic or tribal religion. One of the biggest challenges to reaching a tribal people group is language. Most of the languages that we looked at earlier are mostly tribal people groups. And Brad, uh, their story, man, they lived in the jungle for like 15 years, 15, 20 years. Uh, it was like six or seven years before they even began sharing the gospel with people because it took them that long to learn the language, to learn the culture to a sufficient level so they could share and be understood by the people. And so it's a huge challenge to be able to reach tribal people groups because of the, the proximity and where they live as well. Uh, the T is tribal, H. Hindu, yeah, there we go. All right, I heard a few more people this time. Hindus live primarily in what country? India, right? The thing about Hinduism, there's, Hinduism is really a collection of religions. And so basically there's two things in common amongst Hindus. They believe in reincarnation and they believe in karma. So reincarnation, you die, you're reborn, cycle over and over and over again. Karma, if you do good, you'll receive good. You do bad, you receive bad. Everything else within Hinduism, anything goes. Is there one God? Yes. Is there three gods? Yes. Are there millions of gods? Yes. You can answer that in the affirmative and be a Hindu. Uh, One of the biggest challenges uh, with reaching Hindus is that um, I have a lot of friends in India working amongst Hindus, and they'll say, oh yeah, we'll share the gospel with our friends. And, and they'll be like, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus sounds awesome. Why? Like, I want to worship him. 
And then what they do is they put Jesus on their shelf with the rest of their Hindu gods, and you get things like this. Or they're worshiping Jesus alongside Ganesh or one of the other millions of Hindu gods. And so the challenge is to show them that Jesus is the only way, that he is the only God. Every yellow dot on this map represents 50,000 Hindus. It's about a billion Hindus in the world, or 1.2 billion, over 2,000 unreached people groups are primarily Hindu. T is tribal, H is Hindu, U is unreligious, unreligious. There's tons of people who would claim no religion, which is pretty easy to, to explain. They don't believe in anything, which really means they believe in secularism. Um, and there's about a billion people in the world who would claim to be atheist. Uh, most of the unreached people groups are in former communist countries or current communist countries where they wiped out religion completely. Uh, there's only about 16 unreached people groups that would claim to be unreligious in the world. Uh, China used to be the main unreligious group, but now there's as many believers in China as there is in the U.S. The explosive growth of the church in China. T is tribal, H, Hindu, U, unreligious, M, Muslim. Yeah. Muslims at least believe in one God, and we have that in common with us. They believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus was a prophet. They believe Jesus was sinless. They believe that Jesus is coming again. But they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They don't believe Jesus paid for our sins, and therefore there's no grace in Islam. Because there's no grace, they're working on five different pillars of Islam to try to earn their way to, to be good enough that maybe God will blink and just let them into heaven at the end of their lives. They have to pray five times a day. They have to um, fast during the month of Ramadan while the sun is shining. They have to take a pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia if it possible if at all possible, uh, during their lifetime. They give about at least some of their income to the poor, and they have to say the creed, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet in Arabic. Uh, and to say that in earnest faith and truly believe that, and you're a Muslim. Uh, in the world today, there's about 2 billion Muslims. About 3,500 unreached people groups are primarily Muslim. And I use this picture to describe Muslims in particular because this is actually a much more representative picture of a Muslim than maybe what we typically think about. Uh, typically, we think about Muslims, we think about people from the Middle East, we think about Arabs from, from Saudi Arabia or northern uh, North Africa or other places in the Middle East, but actually only one out of every five Muslims in the world are Arab. There's more Muslims in China than there are in Saudi Arabia. The top four Muslim countries by population in the world are Indonesia, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. It's because of the massive numbers of people there. This map shows where Muslims, every green dot represents 50,000 Muslims in the world. T is tribal, H is Hindu, U is unreligious, M, Muslim, B, Baptist, yeah, right. No, I'm just making sure you're still awake, right? It's Buddhist. I'm Baptist, right? Uh, no, it's Buddhist, uh, which the, they did a great job this afternoon of sharing the beliefs of Buddhism, so I won't dive too deep into that. But mostly in Southeast Asia, Japan, uh, Buddhism was started by a Hindu, so there's some commonalities between Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, the four noble truths uh, that are the core of Buddhism is that all of life is suffering. Suffering, number two, suffering is caused by desire. Number three, desire. If I can rid myself of desire, I will cease to suffer. 
And the fourth noble truth is if I, the way to do that is to follow the eightfold path. And if you rid yourself of desire, eventually you'll reach this state of nirvana, which simply means you cease to exist. That's the hope for a Buddhist, to cease to exist. Does that sound like hope to you? No. So, because that's totally hopeless, Buddhism is a syncretistic religion that soaks up whatever culture it's a part of. So Buddhism in China or Japan or China or Laos or Vietnam or Los Angeles is going to look very different from Buddhism in any of those places. In the world today, there's about 500 million Buddhists or 500 unreached people groups. On this map, every orange dot represents 50,000 Buddhists, mostly in East and Southeast Asia. Now, I think about this whenever I'm learning and reading about other world religions I think there's really three main responses that we can have. One, we can look at their beliefs and think, how foolish, ignorant people. How can you believe something so silly? And we react in pride that, as if we're any better than any other person on earth. But by the grace of God, I would have been born in a Buddhist family. I would have been born in a Muslim family. Or the second response is, is that of compassion. Compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the third response that we can have is to be ambivalent. Who cares? Why would it matter? Why does this matter? And then the question comes up along with that, what about those who never hear? What happens to those people who grew up in the jungle and, you know, and let's say the, the good guy who grew up in the jungle somewhere, never heard the gospel and passes away, without ever hearing the name of Jesus, never hearing the gospel, what, what happens to that good person? Well, the answer to that question is really easy. That person goes to heaven. The problem is that person doesn't exist. This is a weighty, this is a, a difficult thing for us to wrestle through, but a recent Pew Research survey surveyed Christians in America, and about half of all Protestant Christians in the U.S., no matter what denomination or what stripe, or whether you're mainline or evangelical or whatever, about half of all Protestant Christians in the U.S. believe that many religions lead to eternal life in heaven. Now, why does this matter? It's a weighty thing, and I think it's easy and comfortable for us to believe that if other people can be saved without hearing the gospel, then that gives us less responsibility. So what happens? I just want to, this is a, maybe you've thought about this deeply, maybe you haven't. It's a weighty thing. But I just want to share a few verses. I think the Bible is very clear. What God's word has to say is very clear about these things. First reason I would say that that person doesn't exist, I mentioned earlier, is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.20 says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. God has shown his power in the world. 
And so they're without excuse. John 3.18, Jesus tells Nicodemus this. Right after John 3.16, you know that verse. John 3.18, Jesus said, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Talking about the Son of Man. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is saying, by default, we are born in Adam. We are born with the sinful nature. And our default, because of that, is that we're condemned unless we believe in the name of the Son of God. The Last Supper, John 14, Jesus responds to Thomas's question about how will we know the way. John 14, 6, Jesus tells Thomas and the rest of the disciples this. He said, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2. And the disciples affirm this in their ministry. Acts 4.12 being questioned by the, the Pharisees and the ruling council about why a man was healed. The disciples said this, and there's, no, there's salvation in no one else. Why? For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This theme of in the name of Jesus repeated over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts and in the epistles in the New Testament. It's a particular faith that we have. Your faith is only as good as the one that your faith is in. Saving faith is only in the name. And Christ is not just good enough to have a, a generic general faith and a higher power, but a particular faith. That's why the theme of our conference is one by one. Because we win the nations to God through the one man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God is so good and glorious that he is the only one who is worthy of being shared. The only one who is worthy of being praised. The only one who is worthy of all glory and honor and power and might and majesty. Thinking about this topic, John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, there's a whole chapter going through this. If you want to wrestle through this more, I encourage you to read that book. Or There's a book by David Platt over on the table called Something Needs to Change. And it goes through this in this book as well. If you want to wrestle through this, and what does God's word have to say? John Piper in his book says this. He says, the more likely it is that people can be saved without missions, the less urgency there is for missions. This is why this matters. And so, how are we doing in the world? Where are the workers going in the world that are being sent out? Not just from like the U.S., not just from Kansas, but where are the workers from all the world going? Uh, when you think about this in a couple different ways, and look at the example of Paul in the New Testament, in Paul in Romans 15, he says, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. What does Paul mean when he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ? Is Paul saying every single person in that 1,500-mile stretch between Jerusalem and modern-day Albania, Illyricum, which is just north of Greece, that 1,500-mile stretch, has everybody heard the gospel in that area? The answer is, is no. That's like saying, every, I have fully proclaimed the gospel from Emporia, Kansas to Los Angeles, California. That's the type of distance and area we're talking about here. He's saying, no, what, what has happened, though, 
is that through the pioneer church planting of myself and the other people, the other apostles and other believers, there's been a church established in many of those areas that can continue to grow and multiply and be able to reach the rest of the world. There's two different kinds of mission that's talked about here. There's frontier mission, that initial planting. Then there's the regular ongoing mission of people like Timothy and Titus who are at Crete and at Ephesus who continue to grow and build the church. And we need both kinds of missionaries. We need both kinds of work around the world. But before we can have the church building, we first have to have the church establishing, which is why in the very next verses in Romans 15, Paul says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Why? So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, I've been longing to see you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. It's the end of the Roman Empire, the end of the world in Paul's mind during that time. So what about where, where are our workers going in the world? I'll just show you a couple of different maps that illustrate this. Or there's some numbers first. In the world today, is about 400,000 cross-cultural workers from all over the world. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but over half of missionaries in the world are sent out from countries like Latin America, Africa, Asia. And it's actually been that way for decades. The global church taking up the mantle together to reach all nations. In the world today, about 77, 80% of missionaries are working in primarily reached people groups. And by definition, zero are working with unengaged people groups. Only about 3% are working with unreached people groups. That's, it's hard to imagine numbers like that. And so I've got some maps that help us visualize this. This first map, oh, let's talk about money connected with this. So out of every $100,000 that Christians make, only $1.70 is going towards work among the unreached. So if your salary is about $100,000, um, that means less than a cup of coffee each year is being sent to work amongst the unreached when you look at the church as a whole. The maps to help illustrate that. This map shows where the non-Christian population is at in the world. The larger the circle, the larger the number of non-Christians that are in those countries. A large circle here in the U.S. Man, look at China, India, Vietnam, Japan, Bangladesh, Indonesia. And this next map shows where missionaries are going in the world. The larger the circle larger number of missionaries being received in that country. And every time I, I see these maps and, and think about this, it just reminds me the harvest, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers, the laborers are few. And a harvest without laborers becomes a tragedy. But we know that there's hope. Because our God is a good God. And this is God's task. This is the work that God is doing. He's inviting us to play a part. And God is sovereign over all this. And in his patience, he has allowed us in the 21st century 
to be invited to play a part in what God is doing to reach the remaining unreached people groups, the, the remaining nations in the world. And what Jesus said, Matthew 24, is still true, even this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What Luther Wishard, a, a famous missionary pioneer in the early 20th century, late 19th century said, is still true. Luther Wishard said, what others have begun is now ours to complete. Where others have begun, the, the shoulders, the people have gone faithfully before us, now it's being shifted and the opportunity is given to us to play a part and to be invited into this. That God is saying, hey, I want you to labor with me. I want you to come and do the dishes with me. I want you to labor in the harvest fields with me and receive in the joy of that. Let me just pray for us and then we'll be done for the rest of the night. Father, we cling to the hope that you are accomplishing your purposes. Jesus, you are building your church. It is your church. It is your work. And it's just so amazing that you would allow us to participate in what you're doing. God, I pray for each one of us or this weekend that you would encourage our hearts. Would you grow our love for you? And that would spill over into others. That we couldn't help but look at you and just, and just be in awe and in glory of you and seeing your glory and running to others, running to the nations to declare your glory, to declare your marvelous deeds amongst all peoples. God, we love you. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Can we say thanks to Andrew for that? All right, um, just a few things. Parents, pick up your kids promptly, if you would, because there are people over there who want to get over here and talk to the missionaries. So if you could grab your children, that would be awesome. Visit the resource table. Visit the different missionary booths. Speak to them. Um, ask them questions. Get to know them. Get more to know more about their field. Pick up resources. Um, that's part of the genius of this is the chance to actually get to, to meet and to talk to people. Um, service tomorrow, so be here first or second service, same place at normal time, and we'll get to hear Andrew continue and really challenge you to finish up tomorrow night and to hear all that he has to say.